Welcome to episode 238 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Malcolm Baum. Nathan Smith. In today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we will be concluding our Pam Greer series with 2001's Bones. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. Nathan, you had a couple new releases as well as a uh, it's an older release, but I'm going to let you lead it off with uh, the new ones. Yeah, I was able to catch a couple films, uh, two movies that both have been around for a little bit. They both premiered uh, at, at fall festivals last year or i guess ashes pierced white premiered at can um but they both premiered at festivals last year so they've been around they've been playing people have seen them but they're both now getting their official u.s releases um transit just came out in new york and i know is coming out throughout the rest of the country throughout march and april um i know it's opening in nashville you know uh, at the end of the month um ashes purest white i know opens in new york this week and i think it's has a nationwide rollout to follow um they're both very good movies by sort of i guess two filmmakers who have kind of aged into being some of the like real serious art house heavyweights of um of this generation, you know, of, of this decade and of this century so far, both of these guys are really, I think, on a lot of people's lists for the uh, important filmmakers of the the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, the first of these movies, uh, which actually have a review of it coming out next week in the Nashville scene, is Transit uh, by the German filmmaker Christian Petzold, who's actually somebody I'm not super familiar with. Um, and that's, I, this, I think this is a really great movie. And my fault i think for mischaracterizing petzold's work sight unseen um i got the feeling just from like the way people talked about his earlier movies like barbara and phoenix that they were these sort of just like dry rigid like serious realist movies and um at the time those movies were coming out like 2012 i think 2013 2014 that was like just not what i was really into that was not really what i was looking for you know i was kind of a burgeoning cinephile who didn't really want anything to do with like stuffy realism um but his movies really aren't that at all actually uh they're they're really they are i think a sort of real have a sense of realism but are um constantly sort of trafficking in genre tropes uh, specifically kind of tropes mind from old hollywood genre movies a number of his movies are sort of riffing on or, or, or remaking um actually you know older american films like phoenix is a, a little bit of a riff on vertigo his movie yella is a riff on carnival of souls um one of his earlier movies i can't remember the name is also like a re-adaptation of the the um the postman uh always rings twice. Um, so he's somebody who has seen a lot of movies and is really thinking about, about kind of the history of cinema, but he's also thinking about, I think the the history of Europe and the history of Germany politically, you know, his movies are sort of haunted a little bit by the legacy of the Holocaust, the legacy of, of Germany's division and then reunification. Um, I think kind of haunted by the legacies of, of, both capitalism and communism in, in, in that part of the world. Um, so there's a sort of almost a kind of like a liminality, I think to his movies a little bit. And that sometimes they're shut in the present. Sometimes they're shut in the past. 
Um, but there's always a sense, a little bit of almost like blankness to the time that these movies are set in, um, because they're always haunted by history. You know, the past is something really palpable and this movie is transit, um, is set ostensibly in contemporary times, even though we don't really see cell phones or computers or a lot of markers of 2018. Um, but it's actually an adaptation of a novel, um, of the same name, um, based on the author's experiences fleeing the Nazis, um, during World War II published in 1944. So obviously the novel takes place during World War II and is about Jews fleeing the Holocaust. Um, but this movie is, you know, is, is about that. Um, but in really sort of obscured vague terms, you know, we hear about cleansing, we hear about fascists and kind of the coming invasion. Um, but it's, there are no explicit references, which I think is really for the best to kind of just have this like air of intrigue around whatever doom is coming to these people. Um, we follow this guy named George, who's from Paris, um, and it's sort of implied that he is Jewish, but again, none of these things are really made explicit. Um, so he's fleeing Paris to go to Marseille because Marseille is a port city. From there, he's hoping to leave the continent, maybe go to Mexico, maybe go to the U.S. He really doesn't care just as long as he gets somewhere you know, where the government's not trying to murder him. Um, and he is tasked while he's leaving Paris with taking the papers of this famous writer who has just killed himself, um, he, he soon realizes that this writer's name will actually get him a lot of access. And so he assumes his identity and it kind of takes on this sort of flavor of a like Hitchcock wrong man story, but it has this political twist to it because he is, you, you know, a refugee fleeing political, uh, violence. Um, so there's like a little bit of a bent to that kind of classic genre trope. Um, and from there it, it actually becomes a sort of a really compelling romance um, because he meets the wife of this writer whose identity he's taken on. And she's convinced that her husband is going to come back, um, but he's dead and does not. Um, and so the kind of the stakes for George's departure get a little bit higher. Um, he, he, he becomes uncertain uh, as to whether he should leave or not, as to whether he should give his identity to someone else and let them go in his stead. Um, so it is a very like prescient movie. I mean, I think with the state of global politics, um, this is one of the, the few movies I've seen that I feel like really actually, um, I don't know, manages to say something that's kind of compelling and, and urgent without being like on the nose and insufferable about it. Um, it's, it's a really urgent movie. Um, that's also, I think a very, uh, compelling thriller in an interesting way because it is sort of in this stripped down kind of vague realist style. Um, there's not a lot of signifiers of the action genre, but it is a very suspenseful movie. Um, so it works, I think, on both on, on these multiple levels, you know, on this social political level. It has a lot of things to say about our kind of current climate, but it's also uh, a very engaging and very direct and, and movie. And also it has a great uh, for any talking heads fans out there uh cough cough andrew swafford has a really great needle drop over the end credits um that i won't spoil uh fully um so that's coming out soon and i really recommend seeing it um ashes purest white the other new release i have to talk about actually i think is is sort of related to transit in a weird way because it's a very politically and socially engaged movie um as its director shajanko's movies always are um 
but it's a really also a really sort of a conscious riff on uh, action movies and, and on the action genre. Um, this is not the first time in his career that Zsarzhenka has referenced um, John Woo movies. Um, there's a part in his movie Still Life from 2006 where we see a character sort of imitate Chow Yun-Fat lighting a... Um, lighting money like off of his cigarette. Um, and in this movie, we actually hear the theme from John, from John Woo's movie, the killer multiple times. Um, so already, if you know that piece of music, when you're like, this movie is starting, you're sort of set up for, for something, um, kind of relating to that criminal underworld. Um, and, and this is a movie that is about that, but in a sort of a roundabout way, um, it starts off at the dawn of the 21st century and then goes through time in a structure that's probably will be really familiar to people who saw uh, Jaws' last movie, Mountains Made Apart, which was set like the beginning of the millennium, a little bit further on and into the future. This movie is set in 2001 and I think like 2008 and then like I think 2018 maybe or something like that. I'm not totally sure. Um, but so this, this is, you know, um, starts off in this first act is about, um, a woman, uh, named Zhao who is in a relationship with a, with a businessman who's trying to become legitimate, but who still has these sort of underworld connections. um, you know, they spend a lot of time at the clubs. Uh, they they spend money somewhat extravagantly, um, and it's set in this sort of surreal world um, that a lot of Zhezhenko's movies are in, where uh, kind of extreme, stra- extravagant shows of wealth are sort of. Uh, right up against the sort of working industrial rural condition of, of a lot of, of, of the majority of, of China. Um, but quickly things go South. Um, and Zhao has to go to prison after she, um, defends her boyfriend, um, from an attack from some, some, you know, some criminals who just want to take him out. Um, she there, you know, guns are forbidden. Uh, she takes his gun and, uh, fires it into the air. doesn't even shoot anyone and takes the fall for him, goes to prison for like a decade. Um, and then when she gets out, he's not there waiting for her. Um, and she's been sort of abandoned by the world. She has no money. Um, she has to come up with, you know, ways to sort of scam people out of money. Um, so she can get, you know, from the next train station, you know, to the next train station. Um, and so it becomes this movie. I mean, it is very, uh, as always like very reflective movie on kind of like how China has changed over the last two to three decades. Um, as it's opened up more and more as it's undergone all of these kind of reforms um, and becomes, you know, so capitalistic, it's really about that, you know, existing in this larger project. Um, But it's also very much a movie about a woman, um, about Zhao's existence in the world as a woman, how, you know, how men treat her, um, the, the, the things that she has to kind of do, um, you know, to get by. Um, so it, 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 I wasn't really, I knew, you know, that she was also in mountains made apart. I knew she was a great actress. I really, um, 
stunning lead performer, but I wasn't expecting actually this kind of like kind of feminist gender commentary, you know, that wasn't not to say that like, Shazenka is not a filmmaker who is ignorant of, of gender in any way, but it just, I wasn't expecting that really to be the focus of this movie. You know, like I said, it, it sort of sets you up as this action riff and then totally undoes that and becomes something very different and um, just sort of flips, flips it totally, you know, because um, the woman is the one who is holding the gun uh, in this movie. Um, so I know they're both transit and ashes, purest white, like I said, are both kind of rolling out across the country throughout March and April. And, are both immensely worth your time. Whether or not you're familiar with these directors' previous movies, I think they're both very good, honestly, summations of their projects thus far. And they both also are are serious political movies that also have this kind of like genre twist hook to them. So if you need that, you know, to get you interested, there's there's that for you too. Um, so I really recommend seeing both of these movies. I think they're going to be among the year's best. So... Um, yeah, no, uh, friend of the pod, Darren Hughes was a big fan of both of them when he saw them in Toronto. So, yeah, I think they're both movies that could only really be made right now in this moment in time. So, uh, I have another movie to talk about an older movie. If, if we still have time for that. Um, yeah, you and Mike or you and Malcolm take care of it. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, I, I guess I should preface this movie by saying that I just recently, decided to sign up for Netflix's DVD by mail service um, because all props to the New York public library, but sometimes they are very slow. Like if I wanted to see first man right now through the New York public library, I would have, I would be like person 950 on a hold list of like a thousand people. Um, so I just, you know, I was like, I want to get some DVDs. I want to see some movies that aren't on streaming and I don't always want to torrent, even though I am fine with that. Um, so I, I signed up for Netflix's DVD service, which I had had like when I was a kid. Um, and the first movie that I got was Warren Beatty's Bullworth from 1998 a really vicious, hilarious, shocking, uh, satirical comedy, unlike anything else I think that has maybe ever been made in American movies. I don't know. Um, one of three movies that Warren Beatty has been in in the last 20-something years, um, it's about a, a man named Bullworth. Senator Jay Bullworth of California, um, who this movie kind of sets up um, through like a, a through showing us his office, through showing the photos in his office that he, you maybe in the sixties and seventies was something of a kind of a of a Bobby Kennedy, maybe you know we see pictures of Malcolm X and MLK and of him you know, with different radical figures. He talks about how much he loves Huey Newton. Um, so we get the sense that he, when he was younger, he was a kind of a progressive radical guy. Um, but we hear uh, in, uh, in the opening credits of this movie, just over and over again, these um, television spots that have been running for his latest uh, campaign re-election for his Senate seat. And the views that he's espousing are these just like awful conservative dog whistles, you know, about personal responsibility and laziness and all of these just like coded racist and anti-Semitic things. Um, and he's just crying, like um, losing it completely. 
uh, while we're hearing the TV spots aired over and over again. So we get the sense that this guy's life has not taken quite the direction that maybe he hoped as a young idealist pop, uh, politician. And so the movie starts and he um, decides to kill himself, um, but does th- so through some uh, rather curious means. He takes out a $10 million insurance policy from uh, an insurance guy who is like, I guess a lobbyist or uh, insurance lobbyist of some kind who's really close with him and really trying to, you know, influence him in this way Bullworth's politics. So he takes out a $10 million policy and then takes a hit out on himself. The $10 million will go to his daughter and his life will be over and he will be freed from this sort of political drag that he's having to do. Um, But he has this like, a whole complete breakdown. You know, he doesn't sleep for days and he eventually forgets that he's taken a hit on himself. Um, So he somehow just, you know, in, in knowing he's going to die, but then forgetting he's going to die, just absolutely liberates him. Um, You know, he's supposed to go to all these campaign stops, the elections coming up. He goes to a church in South central and he's reading a speech and he stops reading it. And, you know, somebody, stands up and yells and asks, you know, you said you were going to invest in this community after the riots. You said you were going to fund us and and help us get back on our feet. And you didn't do that. And he, you know, rips up his speech and, and just starts going off and like starts talking about how, you know, well, how are we going to help communities of color? Like while we're in the the pocket of big insurance, you know, how are we ever going to pretend like that's an actual interest of the United States government when all these lobbyists have, have all this power and all this influence. Um, and from there, from campaign stop to campaign stop, he just basically just unravels, um, and starts to, uh, speak entirely in rhymes. He starts to wrap his views. Um, he falls in love with this young black activist played by Halle Berry, um, it's just like a really nuts movie and crazy to me that like anybody wrote this, anybody produced this, invested in this. I mean, it wasn't really a successful movie necessarily. Um, but it's just like, I don't know. I, it's very rare to me to like watch a movie, um, you know, from decades ago and have it speak so perfectly to, you know, to our political moment, because, uh, this is a, a, a moment in time when people are, uh, for better and worse, really just wanting politicians to cut the bullshit and, um, say something genuine. Um, and this is a movie very much about that. It's also very much about the fact that Republicans and Democrats are both these machines and both, uh, in the pocket of business and are really not that different from one another that, you know, Warren Beatty just comes out right and says it decades before most people were saying that, um, it's a movie where he calls directly for single payer healthcare, uh, you know, and says that we need socialism. So it's just like the fact that this movie has not been fully reclaimed as a masterpiece. I mean, it is a movie with its, uh, problematic elements and with its kind of grating edges but i think it's it's resonant in a way that like i don't know i think this is just like one of the maybe best american movies i don't know malcolm if if you have anything to add uh, i know you've also are also a big bullworth lover 
Yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of Warren Beatty's directorial efforts in general. And oh yeah, uh, I, a wacky career, really. Like yeah, hey, rules the rules don't apply when it comes to his career, but uh, they don't. They don't. <laughs> the rules don't apply to Dick Tracy. <laughs> yeah, and I something um you know, and he's also kind of had uh, a leftist streak throughout his career. The the one absolutely Reds, Reds, and Parallax View are are both the uh, you know some of the most leftist uh, Hollywood movies I, I could think of, at least. And I think what's one thing that's really interesting about this movie, especially in its depiction at the start, is that uh, something I noticed while watching a movie about let's, you know, deep state individuals, maybe a movie mm-hmm. like JFK, or even a movie like Vice, um, to you know, bring a little new movie in here, uh, <laughs> is uh, that, that these politicians are framed as, you know, kind of these conniving, you know, kind of like, and, uh, you know, to a certain extent, they are conniving in real life, like, but like conniving, almost like uh, evil geniuses to an extent. And one thing I like about Mm -hmm. Bullworth, uh, the character is at the start, it just, it really shows how pathetic he is. And like, that's kind of, yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's how I kind of think it is closer to real life, how these, you know, deep state politicians are. It's just kind of, you know, a you know, people kind of starting out with these political aspirations and, you know, getting bogged down by the system, you know, but like to the point where, you know, they just are complacent in their um, actions. And I think Bullworth does a good job showing yeah. like these people are not necessarily scheming. They're just, you know, they're, uh, you know, puppets for <laughs> lack of a better term. Um, but yeah, there's something about Bullworth that, that really feels, you know, razor sharp, and it's satire. And um, I think maybe the reason it hasn't been reclaimed is that some of its, some of its, you know, um, maybe depictions of like black neighborhoods in LA, stuff like that is a little problematic. But I think Beatty, I think Beatty does have uh, his heart in the right place. I think he's, he's just trying to speak to, you know, systematic oppression and whatnot. But this, this movie, it really is, really does go places that I, I like that you wouldn't expect this movie to go. It's one of the only movies I could ever think of that uh, name drops the COINTEL program, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. So Beatty really does go there. I think, I think um, I get amongst more leftist, far leftist circles, his politics might not get a bad rap, but you know, he might be uh, labeled as a champagne socialist, you know, et cetera, <laughs> or something like that. But I think, I think he do, he puts in his uh, he does his political homework and um, yeah. this movie is really funny. I, like I think a lot of people they hate like they uh, I guess um, they don't like the uncomfortableness of like an uh, old white guy rapping who's really bad at it. But I I find that funny personally. So I mean it's like you know the. Uh Bullworth, the original Hamilton, you know, right? <laughs> um, but it is also though it's it's funny because even though he is like bad at rapping, he's doing all these different kinds of cadences and stuff. And there's like the monologue towards the end when he's on the news show and he's wearing just like this ridiculous outfit of like baggy shorts and a baggy hoodie and stuff, and he's got sunglasses on, and he does this like crazy extended monologue all wrapped and does all of these different sort of rhythms and cadences within it so it's like this performance that is really crazy and and unhinged but also feels like very thought out and very meticulous um and how the performance is designed 
Um, it's like just such a great collection of talent. You know, it's like, I mean, of course, Warren Beatty, as we've said, uh, Halle Berry, Don Cheadle, Paul Servino as the villain. Uh, you have a cameo from Amiri Baraka. Um, you have a soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. Um, you have cinematography by Vittorio Storaro, you know, who did The Conformist and Apocalypse Now. Uh, edited by Robert C. Jones, who is a regular collaborator of Hal Ashby's, and Billy Weber, who has worked with Terrence Malick a bunch. So really, it's just like, not only is it like one of the, I think, the funniest Hollywood movies ever, but it's also just like formally um, at the top of its game. Like the movie takes a really dramatic sharp turn at the end which maybe doesn't work for everybody but it it really works for me because it like the movie is already very well made but slips into this totally different formal register that is almost like something operatic and kind of uh melodramatic formally melodramatic sort of like a coppola movie almost it's got this really you know romantic marconi music and just this over ridiculously like yanis kaminsky like oversaturated to hell light. Um, and it just becomes for like five minutes at the end of the movie, a completely different film. Um, so it's just like doing, it's really funny, but also a fucking like seriously well-made movie. Um, so I highly recommend it to people of all political persuasions. If you listen to Hamilton, you can handle the raps. <laughs> Warren Beatty. Absolutely. It's not, it's not too far off. You know? <laughs> it's just, uh, it's basically Tatiana. I, I feel like his, his flow, you know, it's just sort of like falling <laughs> all over the place. Um, Blue face. Uh, Malcolm, you had a movie. Yeah. Um, keep keeping on the satire train. We have, uh, a movie called four lines by a notable British satirist, Chris Morris, and this is the only movie of his to date, although I think he has a movie premiering at South by Southwest uh, this year, but, and I'm excited for it. But uh, what Four Lines is about is it's about a group of radicalized young uh, British Muslim men who aspire to be suicide bombers. And uh, we have uh, Riz Ahmed as the lead. And, uh, you know, these, these people are deeply critical of Western society and imperialism and all that. And, uh, but what's interesting about the movie, um, is that, you know, it's mostly about their scheme to create a, uh, a big terrorist attack that'll notarize a lot of attention and them trying to think that up and plan that out and the humor that comes with that. And what's, what's interesting about this movie is that, um, you know, it, it, this, you know, this easily in the wrong hands could be, you know, a deeply, you know, racist, like, you know, movie, you know, just dumb, thoughtless. But I think it, it's handled really well in that it it aims to humanize um, these these bombers first, you know, but, you know, but through humor. They're, the, one, the one thing about the movie is that the, it's really being spearheaded by Omar, the Riz Ahmed character. He's the only one who really has an idea and a drive to, you know, do this act. The others seem just to be going along because it's what they're expected to do. They've been kind of almost duped into that. And in seeing that, I mean, depictions of, uh, you know, Muslims in the 21st century film is, is pretty bad. It's probably one of the most maligned, um, you know, sub, you know, subgroups out, you know, you look at a zero dark 30 or just, 
you know, mostly props for, you know, American war films. And uh, Chris Morris being a Brit, he's a Brit, uh, you know, a British fellow, he kind of takes a different spin on it and um, shows kind of the trials and tribulations that come with it. And um, there's just some great details. And uh, Chris Morris is a deeply funny in- individual to me. And one, one funny detail of uh, one of the four uh, of the bombers, one of them is, you know, he's a white guy. He's a convert. And uh, he's, he's always the one um, trying to push things the farthest. And, you know, it's kind of a critique of how people, they, they join a movement or an ideology and instead of thinking of the bigger picture, kind of conflate it with their own problems and own issues. And um, uh, Barry, the, the white uh, Muslim terrorist, is a, a great example of that. He said uh, in the movie there's a scene where they're deciding you know, where to bomb. And he said, you know, why don't we bomb the mosque and radicalize the moderates so that there could be an uprising? And they're like... And, then, and uh, there's, there's a scene, and then Riz Ahmed... The Omar character says, so we should, we should try to attack others by punching ourselves in the face or something. And there's a scene where he has, he has him and Barry get into a fight and Barry punches himself in the own face to show that it'd work. And, you know, it ends in hilarity. But um, it, uh, I think, you know, Chris, Chris Morris, he's someone who I think does satire in a way that really speaks to modern times. And, uh, Four Lions is, you know, definitely that movie. It speaks to uh, modernity in a, a great level and just how these, these characters really seem um, disenfranchised almost to the point where, you know, that it's like, I guess terrorism is the logical option. And uh, another, another um, great satire work that I've been uh, looking into that Chris Morris is his uh, TV miniseries Jam, which I've, I've been a huge fan of and uh, does like, I don't know. I think a lot of people are kind of tired of like Trump jokes and SNL, you know, I think that's been like, you know, passing as, you know, sort of a social satire, but uh, jam kind of speaks to kind of like the alienation and uh, you know, kind of the, the, you know, the alienation that modern living brings and stuff like that. And through, you know, extremely dark humor and uh, Chris Morris's Ho of War, I think, is kind of like my sweet spot for satire. And I think it's kind of uh, similar into Bullworth in that it, it cuts razor sharp. So um, just I'd recommend checking anything by Chris Morris out. You just look up Chris Morris on YouTube. Pretty much all three of his miniseries are there. And uh, Four Lions is a great movie. Cool stuff. Uh, I, I, maybe I missed it, but is it, you'll know if it's streaming anywhere. Uh, I don't think it is, but I think you could like purchase it on like Amazon, you know, for like three bucks or it's on Hulu. It's on Hulu. Oh, cool stuff. All right. Uh, I'm just going to bring the party down, uh, (laughs) to wrap up this (laughs) part one. So, uh, I, I mapped out time and went through the, uh, new HBO documentary, uh, leaving Neverland. Uh, it tell it, it's exploring the experiences by uh, James Safechuck and Wade Robson, who both, uh, when they were kids, were 
friends with Michael Jackson and have come out as saying that they were sexually, sexually abused by the singer and are talking about their experiences, both uh, when they were children as well as uh, now as adults. It also includes um, their uh, number of their family members, uh, both mothers for, for both of the, of the guys, as well as uh, brothers and sisters, and later in the documentary, uh, both of their wives. And, um, yeah, this was a movie, I don't, <laughs> it's, uh, I didn't rate it on, on Letterboxd. I, I saw some, I saw this somewhere, but it's, it's not really, this is really not, less a documentary and more just a, like a confessional or a testimonial I mean, it's a lot of this movie is just these guys, you know, talking, whether it's kind of a medium shot straight on or they have kind of a shot ahead um, overhead and just going into explicit detail about the their experiences with Michael Jackson, both, um, you know, just experiencing him as this this media personality, and then also as this man who was uh, abusing them. And I mean, it's for this is this this documentary is four hours long. Um, the first part really uh, is about them as as children into young adulthood, and then the second part is uh, kind of their experiences with Jackson as the. Uh, accusations around him start to crop up in 2003 and 2008 I think Um, where other children who he's been associated with uh, you know are taking him to court and their relationship still with him in in order it's it's you know they still kind of have this complicated relationship with with him and and, uh, are clearly just kind of just recently getting through that um but like I said, I, I didn't know really how to rate this. Uh, I was thinking a little bit about kind of the, the discussion that we had during our documentary series uh, a couple years back. And, uh, you know, I was trying to parse like what cinematically this is doing. And there's not too, too much cinematically. Like I said, the, the interview shots are pretty normal. Um, it cuts away to like... Um, these these kind of overbearing drone shots of like LA and Neverland Ranch and different places like that um, while they're talking but the one really effective technique that I found and um, I don't know again this maybe this is I'm reading too much into this is you have they, they also have these cutaways to either uh, kind of archival home video like footage of the of the men as kids uh, either just kind of them by themselves or them with Jackson or like a photo with Jackson and you go and you have these different stills and the way that uh, Dan Reed the director and his editors frame it is you have the still or the video in this kind of box square, not necessarily Academy ratio, but just this kind of box square in the middle of the screen. And then around the rest of the screen is just completely in black. Um, that could, you kind of contrast that with the uh, interviews, the modern day interviews, as well as the aerial shots that have a much more traditional widescreen view, but you still kind of have the boxes, uh, the black boxes on the top and the bottom. And 
I was thinking about just that that space while watching, especially some of the archival footage and especially the testimonies of like the parents, the two mothers um, in relation to this, because um, I think it's it's incredibly easy to blame to, to, to immediately you know place blame on them and say because they weren't paying enough attention this happened and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's i mean it's easy to do that they clearly recognize that and they kind of own up to that as the documentary goes along even though the actions that they took were not right um but I was also thinking of just kind of the larger context of processing abuse and being able to um, reckon with abuse just as a as as a population, and how these these kind of black boxes you have these these nostalgic, uh, you know, kind of film grainy memories of of things happening and you're not seeing the the abuse acts happening in these images you're seeing um what looks like happy times what looks like happy memories of these of these kids whether it's with michael jackson or just enjoying their childhood and you and to me that the kind of blackness around these images is is the is the kind of uh unspoken about you know atrocities and the unspoken about um abuse and just everything that's that's happening that we don't necessarily want to address whether it's what's happening that's being described in this movie or you know what's happening um in the way that men men in power are acting you know today in, in 2019 as much in, as in the early you know in the 80s and 90s and 2000s when this is taking place and these stories are happening and and that kind of was effective to me just because when you have the modern day interviews you still have these this kind of black space you still have this un this almost uncharted un um recognize space because even in 2019 there's still lines that have not been you know drawn in it's still it's still a little bit open it's still a little bit uncharted and you know i don't know it's it's i don't really know how you're supposed to uh to reckon with uh with jackson's uh output at this point it's it's a pretty damning interview or documentary movie whatever you want to call it um i i've seen uh the 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 detractors the jackson stands that uh are pointing out kind of poking holes and and wade robson one of the guys's stories and and stuff like that but i just i think it goes back to the the amount of detail and the amount of effort that these men put into really shedding every detail and being completely full you know they're just completely full right and honest with us um there it's just difficult to say i don't believe them um and so i don't know i i don't know if i can I, i i don't know if i can say yeah this is a great movie i think it's an important um piece of you know, deciphering pop culture in our current age, um, in, 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 in the way of, um, thinking about and allowing us to think larger about what it means to, um, reckon with 
terrible artists that make great art but are terrible horrible despicable people um and i think as as kind of a as kind of a skeleton key for that it's interesting but i'm not sure what to make of it as a quote unquote film um but it's leaving neverland it's on hbo now uh yeah it's <laughs> it's 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 definitely a uh map out some time and and be ready to uh have to uh go through a large bit of emotional <laughs> hurdles um yeah that's that i don't know i like i just yeah it's, it, it was just so deeply upsetting um it's really graphic and it's it's just like listening to that and listening to the detail of them describe it is just uh i don't i don't know it's it's yeah it seems rough i yeah it's I, sad i was kind of i i was tentative to watch this movie because i i guess i i i was just wondering you know the graphic details that stuff kind of sort of upsets me i guess personally so I don't. I don't know. I've been kind of scared it to is. check it's, it out. It's 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 extremely upsetting when they're like describing what's happening, and then the parents are talking about like there's multiple instances where, um, uh, James, yeah, James, James Safechuck is describing uh, Michael Jackson doing these things to him while he's on tour because this is around the time that the bad tour is happening and um michael jackson's doing these things and his mother's talking about all of these these people they're meeting because they're on tour with michael jackson and all of this you know she, she goes into this whole thing about how initially they had like rooms that were close to michael jackson and this is at the point when they started letting him sleep in in the room with michael jackson and then they they noticed after on each stop their rooms continued to get farther and farther away and how at times she would like go over to the room and like listen in and it just sounded like they were playing and it's just uh, you know i don't know it's it's just sad i I, it's 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 just such an like i said i don't know how to how to decipher it as a as a movie but i think it's all but i think it's something that's important in in terms of deciphering um reckoning with with bad men making good art and in this current age i think that it at least explores that to a intelligent degree um but yeah leaving neverland it's on hbo uh, we're going to take a short break, but before we do, I'm going to mention some uh, two things that we have on Cinematary.com. Uh, Mike Thorne and Andrew Swafford did a dual uh, dialogue review of Lords of Chaos. That's on the site now. I highly recommend that. And then Courtney Anderson, who has become our like our Marvel beat reporter, <laughs> came in with a, a Captain Marvel review, which she said was fine. <laughs> And so uh, you can check both of those out. We have, uh, we, we have of course, our Patreon uh, page, but I think Andrew is about to tell you more about that in our ad break, which is coming up right now. Hey, Cemetery listeners, Andrew here. During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cemetery does want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com slash cinematary, where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. 
In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us. And we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary. Send us an email, uh, Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com. Leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cemetery has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free. You listen to and read them for free. And the only people getting paid are like Apple and Google, which is depressing. So if you appreciate what we do, if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it, help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com slash and chipping in $5 a month. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back with part two of episode 238 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing and concluding our Pam Greer series with 2001's Bones. Uh, it was directed by Ernest Dickerson from a script by Adam Simon and Tim Metcalf. The movie stars Snoop Dogg, Pam Greer, Khalil Kane, Clifton Powell, and Bianca Lawson. Jimmy Bones is a legendary protector and patron of his thriving neighborhood. Cool, handsome, and respected, Bones is the benevolent caretaker of his people until he is betrayed by those closest to him. Flash forward 20 years, crime and drugs have crumbled the neighborhood, and Jimmy Bones has become a charismatic emblem of better times, but his spirit is about to make a comeback. Bones began as a pitch to New Line Cinema by producers Peter Heller and Lloyd Segan. Quote, Snoop Dogg had done a cameo in a film I produced called Caught Up, Heller explains. I thought Snoop had real star potential with his laid-back charisma and powerful presence. And speaking with him, it was clear that Snoop was very interested in doing a horror movie. Heller approached writers Adam Simon and Tim Metcalf, both aficionados of the horror genre, whom he'd worked with previously. Simon had an idea for a horror film, which he and Metcalf then began to adapt to fit Snoop, Snoop Dogg. Quote, we learned that in addition to horror, Snoop loves Clint Eastwood's work and was also interested in doing a Western. The two genres coalesced into a form where in the first half of the movie, Snoop is the ghost in a classic haunted house story. And in the second half, he is more like Clint, a Clint Eastwood character seeking retribution. Uh, P- Peter Heller and the writers approached me uh, this is producer Lloyd Segan he says that Peter Heller and the writers approached me with the idea for Bones at the time describing it as High Plains Drifter meets The Crow meets Nightmare on Elm Street with Snoop Dogg as the lead character he continued we're going we're creating a whole new genre within the genre the idea of doing a gothic dark thriller set within the horror genre makes it exciting Jimmy Bones is a brandable franchise character which is something very every studio likes a new line has particular expertise in creating a number of branded franchises as diverse as Nightmare on Elm Street Blade Rush Hour and Austin Powers I love that collection of, of franchises in association with Bones Dickerson describes his vision for the film as gothic horror hearkening back to some of the great horror classics like The Exorcist and The Omen. Quote, I'm a big fan of the Italian gothic cinema directors like Mario Bava, Dario Argento, and Antonio Margaretti. And 
Bones was a chance to do something on this level. I've seen horror films since I was a kid, but I also read literature, and the script grasped the larger vision of the genre, which is about people coming to grips with the fantastic. And Jimmy Bones... Snoop Dogg said he discovered the type of film role he had long been looking for. Quote, people are always saying to me, Snoop, why haven't you starred in a movie? Because it was never the right movie, the right situation, until now. This was the perfect role, and it was handcrafted for me. Jimmy Bones is a real person, the lord of his neighborhood. He goes through the community spreading love, keeping the peace, not allowing drugs and violence. But he's someone who is who is wronged by evil people and gets the opportunity to take his revenge. I'm able to come back and take care of those who uh, thought they took care of me. Dickerson on casting Pam Greer, quote, When I was casting the role of Pearl, I was thinking which black actors can play from 30 years of age to 50 years of age and do it with grace and style and have the strength needed to portray the character. And the only per- person I thought of was Pam. For me, it was a kind of Pam or nobody else mindset. He added, when I told Snoop that I was trying to get Pam to play Pearl, he said, oh man, you have to get her. And when I told Pam that Snoop was playing Jimmy Bones, she said, I love Snoop. So they were a mutual admiration society from the beginning. The film had a worldwide box office gross of $8 million on a $16 million budget. In 2001, Entertainment Weekly say, said, maybe pure trash, but it's trash made with the kind of oozy psychedelic zest that powered a movie like A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. In 2001, the New York Times said, In exalting the very worst of humanity, Bones displays a special glee and an unusual density of scary imagery. And in 2001, the Hollywood Reporter said, A garish, grotesque slab of silliness drowned in bloody visual effects overkill with an end result that is more horrible than horrific. On that note, let's dig into Bones and... um, I guess let's start a little bit with with just the movie in general. Um, I mentioned that Dickerson kind of talked about ha- having that kind of the Italian horror giallo uh, vibe to it, and and you definitely get that when it comes to like the way blood spurts and the way just violence looks in this movie. I mean, was that something before learning that that you kind of got that vibe that he was uh, kind of doing something like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this movie is so obsessed with corpses and like, you know, maggots and just really creepy, crawly, like nasty, slimy substances. Um, so it definitely like for me, it even addition all the filmmakers that Dickerson named in in your quote, Zach. It also reminds me a lot of Fulci, you know, just in that like emphasis on just like deteriorating, degraded flesh. Um, which is something that, uh, a bit of an interest in, um, sometimes when it comes to movies, I like that kind of imagery. Um, this is like, it has such a European flair to it, you know, just the whole Gothic thing. It's like very not conventional American horror really well just to add to your point i was gonna say um not just deteriorating flesh but like the scenery and the landscape around everything is also like deteriorating it just seems like everything is just decaying and and also just a lot of candles you know um boatloads of candles um i i had uh, seen this film before um dickerson is a little bit of like i don't know it's just a fascinating little niche of a director to me um because you know he was spike lee's go-to cinematographer for the first part of his career you know do the right thing she's got to have it malcolm x all those movies you know their unforgettable look is thanks to ernest dickerson and so um just even that to begin with is like you know interesting to me i love his movie juice which uh 
stars another rapper, Tupac Shakur. Um, you know, he also directed the Tales from the Crypt movie, Demon Knight. Um, he's just got like such a, a strong, compelling, really colorful visual sensibility. Um, it's it's really bold, and it's I I mean, you can just like even though this is a horror movie and. Spike Lee's movies with Ernest Dickerson are not at all horror movies in this way. Um, you know, you can kind of tell that they're shot by the same person. Um, I, it's not really shocking um, because of that. Other, or actually, I don't know. I don't think Dickerson was the cinematographer on. No, he was not the cinematographer on Bones, but of course, you know, he had a hand in it. So it's not really shocking to me, you know, the connection there. Um, so, and it's just what a like fusion of different genres, you know, the, that quote you shared about, um, what high plains drifter meets Elm street meets the crow with Snoop Dogg is pretty on point. I think although they're on like a black exploitation movie in there too, of course. Um, by the way, I just want to say that, uh, I just looked up the cinematographer of bones, um, Flavio Labin- Labi- Labiano. And he uh, photographed the movies Unknown, Nonstop, and The Shallows, which are all very nice-looking, well-directed movies. So there you go. Anyways. All directed by Yame Collette Sarah, right? Yep, yep. Nice, nice. Um, Malcolm, what did you make of the uh, visuals? uh, I mean, the visuals are are very interesting. I I, I especially responded early into the film of... uh, kind of like the cross-cutting between the 70s uh, milieu and kind of like the the modern-day one. Um, I, th- I think like just kind of like the way the film opens, like with uh, how we're introduced to the character Bones, you mm-hmm. know, spinning his butterfly, butterfly knife. It's, it's very, it's very uh, you know, I can't help but think of a, a music video while watching it because it's, it's it has like this, you know, it takes chances with the editing and it has like this uh, visual... Um, sen- you know, sensibility to you know sensationalize everything, and I thought it was a great way to introduce the character, and especially a, a character who is played by Snoop Dogg. Um, but yeah, uh, Dickerson's attention to visual—you know—he's one of honestly, in my book, he's one of the best cinematographers of all time. He shot some of the best-looking yeah. movies of all time, and uh, so you know, when watching a Dickerson movie that. Um, you know, even with his later work, you know that the visuals are going to be a redeeming quality. When you think of like, especially some of his work with like Spike Lee, it's very, um, it's very close quarters. It's very kind of confrontational at times. And that seems to really work effectively for this body horror, um, you know, deeply disturbing, grotesque movie, because, you know, I think that just kind of abjectly like having the the black gray body things that come out of the wall are can be kind of hokey oh and silly God, but yeah. the, like the way he sh- that, that they're shot they're so like um they feel almost like they have a 3d projectile effect even though it's you know it's 2d uh there's something so invasive about them when they appear i mean yeah that that you know, it feels like this whole Renaissance tableau almost. Um, there's these bodies crawling out of the wall. Um, yeah, it's just like very directed. You know, every angle feels very extreme. Um, and every color is really kind of overemphasized. You know, a lot of 
red, blue, green, like very strong shades of those colors. Um, I feel like, and then you have the sort of the sepia tone in the parts of the movies that are set in the 1970s, which I feel like it gives it a nice subtle distinction. You know, it's not like overemphasized sort of hokey flashback uh, kind of visual look. It just has a, like a little warmth to it um, to distinguish between present and past. Whereas the present of the movie, is, like we've said, decaying and just like very cold and, and foreboding, I guess. Mm. And what, one of uh, the, the things I love about kind of like the urban decay it displays uh, in this film, I feel like it kind of, um, you know, it kind of reaches beyond its, you know, kind of like giallo kind of like influence and kind of uh, shows kind of like, I feel like Snoop Dogg's character, you know, he's super mad about the urban decay, how things have gone and stuff. It's, it's in a very uh, American type of bitterness. And like Bones is a, Bones yeah. is a very bitter individual when he uh, re-resurrects and even kills, you know, his closest friend. Spoiler, I guess, kills his closest friend who was there protecting him. He's like, he should have done more. And it's just, I don't know, there's something very raw. And it does speak to, the, the, I guess, the, the Eastwood influence. I mean, yeah, you know, it is sort of Western um, flavor, I guess, to the conflict. Because it is about, like, Snoop Dogg wants to, like, protect his neighborhood. He wants to, like, save the community, um, which is, I feel like, a very sort of Western theme. You know, every John Ford movie is, like, about community. Um, so so there's that element to it. So it is this interesting fusion of this sort of visual influence from from Italy and from, from Gothic horror, you know, a very European flair, but with this very American conflict, you know, it's about community and it's also a, about property you know the the whole conflict of this movie generates with the ownership of this dilapidated abandoned building um and is basically about uh, it, you know it's basically a horror movie about gentrification um and and property ownership um i feel like it's actually I've got some smart things to say beneath the surface um, I don't know if you guys agree with me on that or not. Oh, well, it's kind of like those those uh, those people who who wronged him. It, you know, it can kind of seem almost like a cartoonish, like we were talking about, like a Western cliche that you know I have to come back and and you know fight back for the community. But these are all people who, for the you know, for, for the most part, except for the one random cop guy, uh, are like. Uh, black individuals who are living within the neighborhood who are part of this community and mm -hmm. they use like their power and influence uh, both before and then after his death in order to continue to rise. It seems like everybody post Bones's death has, you know, use that in order to catapult them to mm -hmm. places of greater influence. And so it's kind of this, uh, this kind of sly commentary on, you know, losing your roots, losing, uh, the, the perspective that you had when you were much more, uh, focused on helping, you know, the, the, the smaller community, helping the people around you and you've, your ambition has kind of gotten the best of you. And that's, that's really what they're, und you know, they're undoing is rather than this mystical ghost figure who's coming and, and looking for retribution. I also feel like though there's like maybe this is just my uh, it's my tendency to read things in this way. You know, I don't know. There's like a very um, a kind of a political edge to it because so often you know people look at you know this, the kind of neighborhood that this movie is about. You know, this poor, um, predominantly black neighborhood. You know, and they say, oh, you know, 
those people are like on drugs, they're lazy, blah, blah, blah. And so here, you know, the, the, the scapegoat is always like crime or whatever. So here you see the real like ultimate issue is not that you have Snoop Dogg as Jimmy Bones going around, you know, you know, as a pimp. He's not really the ultimate problem. He's the one who wants to actually stay in the community and invest in it and build it up and and support it. Um, you know, it's it's business and the police who are the ones who want to kind of suck this community dry and then leave because um, basically, you know, to, I guess break the the plot slash conflict of this movie down for our listeners who maybe haven't seen it. Um, Jimmy Bones' associates want to introduce crack cocaine into the community. He says, no, I don't want to destroy people. You know, I don't want to, to, um, you know, I love these people. I don't want to ruin their lives with this filth. Like we're not going to do it. Um, so they kill him. Um, they start to, to sell drugs in this neighborhood. And then, uh, all of these business associates leave. They flee to the suburbs, you know, they get out of there and they do really well for themselves. Um, so his looking up the name of his, his, who is that? His, uh, Jeremiah, I guess his partner, um, you know, his children come back years later, buy up this, this old abandoned building where now the ghost of bones resides in the body of a, uh, dog, you know? Um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, so it's, it's like, uh, you know, every chicken's kind of coming home to roost, you know? Um, I don't know. I feel like it's like at the end of the movie, when spoiler alert bones kills everybody, uh, including Jeremiah, he tells him, you know, he's like, you just wanted to like own something for yourself. So I feel like this movie in this, you know, maybe unintentional way is kind of about like the violence of property ownership, you know, like they just want to, you know, the characters in this movie just want to own and they just want to have a piece of something and there is no way for them to get it without destroying other people. Um, so, you know, the, the, the killing at the end of the movie that bones does when it basically turns into this like drifter slasher movie, um, is there comeuppance for that? I guess, um, you know, it, it's sort of saying like, don't, you know, it, it's this cycle of gentrification, I guess that you see where like, People suck a community dry, say, you know, they condemn it, they flee from it. And then years later, they come back and they say, oh, you know, this is cool. This is edgy. Like, let's put in a nightclub and kick everyone out. Um, I don't know. I feel like this movie has a sort of, at the very least, a sort of like has enough of kind of the right ideas and signifiers for me to fill in the gaps. Maybe, you know, I don't think it's necessarily an intentional commentary, but I feel like I don't know. It, 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 horror has a capacity to say intelligent things. Um, and I feel like this movie does, does that. I don't know. Anyways, I just monopolized the microphone for a long time. I just <laughs> no. have a lot to say about this movie. Uh, no, it's good. So I, it's, I definitely agree. And there's definitely some things that happen in the movie that I think that make what you're saying, you know, it's, I think it's definitely within the text of the movie, like thinking of the Jeremiah character, the father of all the, the children who by the nightclub, uh, there's, yeah. there's this distinct line where he says, you know, I, I didn't, I was not given what I had. I had to go out and get it. And you know what he, the things that he had to do to go get it basically, you know, speak to the decimation of the community. And then you have, uh, yeah. uh, the, the pimp character who, uh, who seems to be still within the community, but being, you know, kind of destroying it, you know, with 
you know, his best interest in mind and, you know, working with, you know, police who, you know, also have kind of, uh, taken away from the community. And I got to give a shout out to Michael T. Weiss as the, you know, greasy fat cop, because that's a, (laughs) that's one of the greasiest and, you know, most grotesque cop characters I've seen in a while. His, uh, like face makeup is (laughs) horrifying, like scarier maybe than anything else in the is just the amount of shit piled on his face. Oh, definitely. And like for for those for fans looking for that Gerard Butler and Den of Thieves feeling, give Bones a watch because <laughs> I think uh, Michael T. Weiss uh, is, is a good supplement to that. Let's kind of shifting to the uh, the right. You know, reason we're watching this. Let's let's talk a little bit about Pam Greer in this film. Last week we talked about how um, I mean she's in Ghosts of Mars for all of fifteen twenty minutes. Uh, this one she gets a little bit more substantial role and it and it feels uh kind of equally suited to her she gets to kind of play ham up this this wonderful uh you know mm-hmm. the crazy psychic lady uh, of the neighborhood and uh i think is is you know perfectly attuned to play this role i mean what what did you make of this as kind of a a late in in her career pam greer role i think it's like sort of a nice aging into this kind of role because I mean, as we, you know, uh, have seen with so many genre stars, you know, beyond just action, beyond just horror, just genre stars in general, you know, some of them find a niche in their old age and some of them keep trying to do the same thing and can't really do it anymore because they're getting old. And this is just like a perfect role because it's not like, you know, really demanding like intense physical work from her, but also it's just like, she just seems perfectly suited to this kind of like matronly, you know, kooky psychic lady, but who's also the kind of, you know, the horror trope of the, the, the wise old person who warns the, the young people who are going into danger. Um, she's just, uh, suits suited, you know, the old Pam Greer is suited well for that, but she's also, um, still got, you know, she's still like so spry and like, youthful still at the same time so it's like even though the de-aged pam greer in this movie looks a little weird like it's not fully believable um which is not really the point but um i i think she still is able to play both like the old and the younger uh versions of herself in this movie pretty well like she can do both of those um very well still and like yeah, there's like a big age difference between her and Snoop Dogg, which is kind of funny uh, to me. I don't know. Just them together is just a weird pairing, but also like not that weird. And I buy it. You know, they're just these two like iconic, deeply iconic uh, personas um, with so much charisma, both of them to boot. So like I totally buy their romantic coupling uh, in this movie. Definitely. Yeah, it's like... I, th- I think you're right. They they both ooze this very natural charisma. Both of their characters, I feel like, weren't like 
they they didn't explicitly write anything for him. They were just kind of like both of them. Yeah, just just go and do stuff. Like I'm sure your choice will be fine, uh, because it feels uh, both of these characters feel very natural to them and and the choices that they make. I mean, uh, really, the most affecting scene to me is halfway through the movie when Pam Greer's character is is like running a seance, and at the same time her daughter is is like being like closely possessed by bones and there's like this weird connection between her and her daughter and bones and it becomes like this very explicit giallo sequence where like the daughter is being like covered in this you know this buckets of like giallo grade blood and it's just like this like deeply uh gothic tragedy ish like it feels very uh, much something like pulled out of like a like a renaissance painting or some sort of uh, gothic novel like it, it it seems almost a little bit over the top but the way that one dickerson shoots it and the and also just the way that all of these actors are selling it it just feels like this very um Mm-hmm. just incredible sequence that just happens randomly in the middle of this movie. Yeah. I mean, there's even like more genres to this movie, right? Like, you know, you have black exploitation or Western. Um, but then you have the list, like the, the Gothic romantic melodrama, you know, that this movie really like at its heart becomes this romance between, um, Snoop and, and Pam Greer. Um, and as, and as I feel like she's kind of the, in a way, the sort of the anchor of the movie, ultimately, like she's not in tons of it, but, um, she's the, you know, the, the, the sensible, really grounded character, even while also being a psychic, um, you know, she's the sort of, I feel like the heart of this movie and also the historical connection to black exploitation, you know, she's really what connects this movie to the 1970s. So this movie does have this sort of like gravitas of history to it because of her presence in it. Um, so I feel like she really anchors this movie, honestly. No. Yeah. Greer, uh, Greer's almost her iconography almost as like a 70s star really works well in especially and I think she's good throughout the whole movie but in the 70s um, you know setting and milieu it's uh, like you said you know she knows how to carry herself in these scenes because you know she she you know was a star of the 70s and stuff like that and uh, Mm -hmm. she um, it's almost like you know kind of Snoop Dogg is kind of like this kind of weightless, you know, walking on air type of personality. And Pam Greer kind of, you know, almost is kind of grounds it emotionally, at least in those scenes for me. Yeah, no, she feels like, you know, she's seen some shit, uh, you know, and has like a, a feet. You just really feel like her life experience, I guess, um, when she's on screen. To be fair, she feels like that, and at least in this, in the thing that the series that we've done, and right, every one no, of these absolutely. movies, it feels like she's like, seen that's some shit. Just her, <laughs> um, you know. But now she's old, so she's like both ends of, of having seen, seen some, some shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, we've talked about him a little bit, but I mean, I think. What, what what do you make of, of Snoop Dogg's performance in this? Uh, Malcolm and I were talking a little bit off mic beforehand, and he it just kind of feels like there's not a lot of him. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of weird. It's it it's not like you are just inundated with Snoop Dogg, but he he mm-hmm. has enough time. I feel like to amaze, at least make some sort of impression, whether that's positive or negative. 
Yeah, I, he he is sort of just like walking through the movie a little bit. But like you said, Malcolm, you know, he he does just sort of like collide through just everything uh, in in seemingly everywhere he in life. You know, just it just seems effortless. So I don't really mind that at all. It works well for the role that he's in because by the end of the movie, he has just sort of turned into like a cowboy Freddy Krueger dressed in black. You know, doing these sort of like wacky supernatural murders and like spouting off kind of one-liners um in a dry you know snoop dog manner um so i think it's like you know works well for him you and like when he, he said you know the quote from him you know where he said that it was built around him like it really does feel like it was built around him um he you know he's somebody who i he's been in a lot of movies um but i always feel like I, I, I on one hand sometimes I do feel like maybe he probably gets the right parts. On the other hand, though, I would I always would like to see him a little bit more um, sometimes in the movies that he's in. But um, I don't know. It, it at least very it has me very excited uh, for the beach bump. Um, you know, he's just oh, yeah. such an. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many times you can say somebody is just a natural pr- presence, but he just really is. Um, so. Yeah, I th- I think I think it's best to not a- ask Snoop Dogg to act possibly too much, if that makes sense. To because like I I feel like maybe like a movie that's built around a lot of Snoop Dogg's acting. The only one I could think of mm-hmm. that comes to mind is Mac and Devin go to high school, and um, <laughs> which uh, you know I I remember Snoop's <laughs> acting in that, and I'm not you know I couldn't possibly blame the director, but. Um, it's, you know, it's not, I, I don't, you know, I think you're right in that the movie has to be built around him or his character or his, his character has to be somewhat, you know, related to his already established persona. And I think yeah. Bones, Bones does a good job with that. And I think Ernest Dickerson, looking at Ernest Dickerson's filmography, he has worked with a lot of rappers. Um, oh, yeah, actors, DMX. And uh, Ice-T yeah. for Surviving yeah. the Game. And um, and I, to be honest, I haven't seen those movies, but I have seen Juice and yeah. uh, um, Tupac was is definitely a more polished actor than Snoop, I would say. But like, it's still, I still think the milieu that Juice is in perfectly fits kind of the persona Tupac had already created for himself, and I think Bones does a great job in doing that too. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is you know like. I don't know. By this point, already um, Snoop Dogg being a few years into the game, uh, you know, just had this sort of like stone cold killer kind of uh, persona, you know, like working with No Limit Records, like around this time in the early 2000s and stuff, you know, he I feel like he was just kind of a straight up murderer (laughs) Um, when it when it came to the bars. uh, So it makes sense that he is also that here. Um, it's just like a cool, it's, I know it's very interesting to hear that he has an affection for Clint Eastwood. Um, both because now I like which Clint Eastwood movies and also just thinking about Snoop Dogg as a sort of analogous to Clint Eastwood is very interesting. Um, we got it. We got to let Clint know so they, they can link up for a movie before it's also, I know. Could you imagine a sequel to the mule? 
just uh, Clint Eastwood and, and Snoop Dogg in a car. Dude. Green Book, but with Clint oh Eastwood driving Snoop Dogg. Damn, imagine Snoop Dogg <laughs> passing Clint the, the blunt. You know, you know, I'd have to crack a smile. <laughs> Call Nick Vallelonga. Maybe actually, maybe honestly, that's what. Um, the beach bum is because I know that in that movie that Jimmy Buffett and Snoop Dogg are supposed to write like a song together. Oh. So maybe the beach bum is really just green book, but with Jimmy Buffett and Snoop Dogg. Green knew what we wanted before we even knew, you know, I know. Wow. <laughs> Six steps ahead. You know, it's like five dimensional chess. Oof. The last thing I was kind of curious about with bones is like I mentioned at the beginning, it didn't do very well at the box office. Um, but at the same time, like the reviews weren't like overwhelmingly terrible. Like it seemed like a, a lot of people yeah. kind of vibed with it. Um, I, you know, I don't know, just kind of armchair, you know, thoughts. You know, why, why do you think that this didn't hit with audiences? Like, because I feel like this, they they mentioned franchise potential, and you could see like five yeah. of these movies where he just keeps coming back and killing people. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the poster, and that's just kind of like a. A, a great poster, and B, looks, you know, it has this logo and everything and the Bones font. Um, so it feels like it maybe had franchise potential. I don't really know, honestly. Um, I mean, maybe it was just a little too weird. You know, it is, it is like we've been saying, this, you know, gothic, um, kind of gross movie. And thinking about other horror movies coming out around then, like... Um, I, I don't really know if it fits in super well because I feel like that was a sort of uh, transitional time for horror movies, you know, where um, I mean, around the same time as Ghost of Mars last week, which also feels like a sort of transitional movie because it's like kind of new metal, but also, you know, it's by John Carpenter, who's like a elder statesman of horror and it doesn't it's trying to do something new, but not fully succeeding and i feel like bones is also just sort of this weird time where like horror is figuring itself out and then you know the next 2002 and 2003 you know you start to have kind of an introduction of of air quotes because i don't like this term but torture porn and like you know all of the the michael bay produced platinum dunes horror remakes and so you start to have like the trends of the decade i i feel like emerge like the year or two after this so i feel like it maybe just came in a weird time where like this wasn't really like anything else. And so it just didn't really stick. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts um, as to why it maybe didn't do well, but no, I kind of agree with you. I think it, it just was, I don't know. It, it just, I guess didn't have that wider appeal to people. Like, I don't think they yeah. necessarily got what it was doing. It uh, kind of like we discussed in the first half of this conversation, it, it does have kind of higher ambitions than just being like, um, some nightmare on Elm street ripoff. You know, it's not like it's just trying to capitalize on that and just throw a Snoop Dogg in there. Like we talked about, there is some, some meat and some weight to the narrative that it's presenting. It's doing a lot more with the visuals than you would get. If it was some sort of knockoff ripoff of, of a mm -hmm. previous, uh, horror success. And I don't know, maybe it's one of those cases. It's just a little too ambitious and came at the wrong time. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's it's hard to put this movie in a box, as we were describing with its mix of genre and stuff like that. And, you know, you look at maybe some other horror movies that came out at the time. I don't know. I think like Session 9 or like <laughs> The Others or something like that. Like, 
those like session nine is a movie that's it's a mental institution horror movie and it's exactly that it's you get and you get like two hours of that you get a i don't know you get (laughs) that robert caruso star power (laughs) but uh uh like uh, something like bones is very yeah like ambitious and I don't know the tone. The tone is very. It's mixed too. It's also very funny at times too. Like yeah. to to where a point where uh, a less educated viewer would be like, "Oh, this is this is stupid. It's not scary. Like I'm <laughs> above this, you know." Which which would be a way of thinking for you know the populace at the time. <laughs> I guess it does fit into like there's maybe a mini sort of black exploitation revival at the beginning of the 2000s. Like you have the Shaft sequel and Undercover Brother. You know? same time so like maybe it was trying to fit itself in with that but again like we've said you know it's like six different genres so i think again it's just yeah it's like you said Malcolm. you know it's like somebody who's maybe not going in thinking about like all of these different elements putting this movie together uh it's just going to be like oh it's not enough of one thing you know it's not scary enough but it's also not funny enough but it's also you know whatever you know it's not enough of any one thing it's a bunch of different little things pieced together so i like movies like that so um, works for me any kind of wrap-up thoughts as we as we come to an end on our pam greer series um to me i'm really i, I was really happy that we ended up doing this um i think that I, I just really gained a lot of appreciation for her as just this persona um there's like like she really just does i I said Mm -hmm. it when we first started in the first movie but she really when she comes on screen she completely just owns it and even here where she's not given she's given a a larger part than she was in in ghosts of mars but still it's you know kind of second build to the snoop dogg who's the star she's able to really create a personality for herself and i think you know, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I we talked with Mia Mask, you know, halfway through the series, and she talked about kind of uh, you know roles drying up, and I just feel like she was that Pam Greer was an actress who definitely should have been in like much more mainstream big movies because she was is definitely like a movie star, but clearly just was overlooked uh egregiously and i think that's just really that's just really a kind of a bummer because i think you could stick her in so many um so many roles and she would be instantly uh just fantastic and instantly fun to watch i mean i like i said last week with ghost of mars like i would have substituted her for ice cube in the lead role yeah. like i would just let her <laughs> play that role like I it would have been fantastic and i think the thing is too though even though like you say she a lot of times had a career sort of like on the fringes of the mainstream a little bit, you know, in these sort of uh, lower B genres. Um, it is a really sort of, she does is a lens into a kind of a lot of changes, I think in, in film in, in America over the decades, you know, because all these movies that we've looked at are these different, you know, these different genres, you know, from women in prison to black exploitation to sort of Quentin Tarantino, like prestige exploitation revival, you know, to like, sci-fi new metal horror to this you know whatever bones is um it is a sort of like a fascinating way to look at how much has changed and how much hasn't changed um in sort of genre filmmaking um on an industrial level over the past four to five decades so yeah that is true because we're we definitely have uh you know bounced very far back and forth to different 
places. And yeah, and I, again, that's a testament to Pam Greer because she's great in all of them. <laughs> it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's like you just she rolls with whatever you're you're giving her. Uh, yeah, big 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 Pam fan now. And I, I, I've, I haven't watched, admittedly, I haven't watched a lot of uh, movies where Pam Greer had big roles besides, I guess, Above the Law, uh, the Seagal movie. But uh, um, watching her in this movie, I mean, her screen presence is, you know, truly undeniable. And, that, mm-hmm. and those are some of my favorite actors, just someone with an undeniable screen presence. So I'm, I'm definitely going to atone for my sins and catch up on her filmography. Um, well, I guess that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode. And finally, on Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematary, if you would like to support the show. Uh, coming up next week, we will be starting our next very ambitious series. I'm kind of excited about this one. Uh, I don't think we... I don't think we really have a name for it. Um, it's uh, it's pretty much, uh, I guess, the most easy way to describe it is it's Southern movies, uh, fact or fiction. We're, we're taking narrative films about the South and pair, we paired them with a documentary that kind of has a similar, it's covering a similar subject or, mm-hmm. or going about something in a similar way. And so uh, over the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, um, We'll be doing that. Um, we're going to be kicking it off next week with To Kill a Mockingbird and Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun. Then we have Deliverance and Hillbilly. Then uh, Marjoie and uh, Wiseblood, Heartworn Highways and Nashville, Harlan County, USA and Norma Ray, The Color Purple and Hale County this morning, this evening. Uh, Four Little Girls and Selma. And then we'll wrap it up with Breaking the Huddle and Remember the Titans. So kind of excited to go through this one. Uh, I mean, for me, the reason I kind of wanted to get into this series is I think that there is this um, uh, very narrativized, idealized, whatever you want to nostalgic, whatever you however you want to describe it, view of the South uh, that is perpetrated through through kind of narrative, not just narrative movies, but also TV shows and, and literature and et cetera. And I think that pairing, you know, these iconic versions of this very Southern thing with a documentary that's kind of either permeating that specific subject. I know our first two weeks, the, the documentaries are literally in conversation with the mo- the narrative movie that we're talking talking about. But some of them we kind of went off on a limb to a little <laughs> bit and are exploring just what what is uh, the larger idea of the South and what is the more South's idea of the South? And I think that's really uh, interesting. and something that a subject that should be explored uh, today. So I'll, I will be posting these pairings on cinematary.com tomorrow. So please check it out um, until then. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. wrap up this episode with a thank you to our patreon subscribers thank you so much for supporting the show cam christopher metcalf matthew lingo ron hayes tyler chandler and whitney rio ross we appreciate your donation and thank you so much for supporting cinematary